0: Chapter Three of The Princess Priscilla's Fortnight by Elizabeth von Arnim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. They crossed from Calais in the turbine. Their quickest route would have been Cologne, Ostend, Dover, and every moment being infinitely valuable. Fritzing wanted to go that way, but Priscilla was determined to try whether turbines are really as steady as she had heard they were. The turbine was so steady that no one could have told it was doing anything but being quiescent on solid earth. But that was because, as Fritzing explained, there was a dead calm, and in dead calms—briefly he explained the conduct of boats in dead calms with much patience, and Priscilla remarked when he had done that they might then, after all, have crossed by Ostend. "'We might, ma'am, and we would be in London now if we had,' said Fritzing. They had indeed lost several hours and some money coming by Calais, and Fritzing had lost his temper as well.' Fritzing, you remember, was sixty, and had not closed his eyes all night. He had not, so far as that goes, closed his eyes for lights without number, and what his soul had gone through during those nights was more than any soul no longer in its first youth should be called upon to bear. In the train between Cologne and Calais he had even, writhing in his seat, cursed every single one of his long-cherished ideals, called them fools, shaken his fist at them, a dreadful state of mind to get into. He did not reveal anything of this to his dear princess, and talking to her on the turbine wore the clear brow of the philosopher. But he did feel that he was a much-tried man, and he behaved to the maid Annalisa exactly in the way much-tried men do behave when they have found someone they think defenceless. Unfortunately, Annalisa was only apparently defenceless. Fritzing would have known it if he had been more used to running away. He did in his calmer moments dimly opine it. The plain fact was that Annalisa held both him and Priscilla in the hollow of her hand. At this point she had not realised it. She still was awestruck by her promotion, and looked so small and black and uncertain among her new surroundings on the turbine, that if not clever of him it was at least natural that he should address her in a manner familiar to those who have had to do with men when they are being tried. He behaved, that is, to Annalisa as he had behaved to his ideals in the night. He shook his fist at her and called her fool. It was because she had broken the princess's umbrella. This was the new umbrella bought by him with so much trouble in Gerstein two days before, and therefore presumably of a sufficient toughness to stand any reasonable treatment for a time. There was a mist and a drizzle at Calais, and Priscilla, refusing to go under shelter, had sent Fritzing to fetch her umbrella, and when he demanded it of Annalisa, she offered it him in two pieces. This alone was enough to upset a wise man, because wise men are easily upset. But Annalisa declared, besides, that the umbrella had broken itself. It probably had. What may not one expect of anything so cheap? Fritzing, however, was maddened by this explanation, and wasted quite a long time pointing out to her, in passionate language, that it was an inanimate object, and that inanimate objects have no initiative and never therefore break themselves. To which Annalisa, with a stoutness ominous as a revelation of character, replied by repeating her declaration that the umbrella had certainly broken itself. Then it was that he shook his fist at her and called her fool. So greatly was he moved that after walking away and thinking it over, he went to her a second time and shook his fist at her, and called her knave. I will not linger over this of the umbrella, it teems with lessons while it was going on the princess was being very happy she was sitting unnoticed in a deck chair and feeling she was really off at last into the ideal some of us know the fascination of that feeling and all of us know the fascination of new things and to be unnoticed was for her a most thrilling newness nobody looked at her people walked up and down the deck in front of her as though she were not there One hurried passenger actually tripped over her feet, and passed on with the briefest apology. Everywhere she saw indifferent faces, indifferent, oblivious faces. It was simply glorious. And she had had no trials since leaving Gerstein. There Fritzing had removed her beyond the range of the mother's eyes, grown at last extremely cold and piercing. Annalisa, all meek anxiety to please, had put her to bed in the sleeping car of the Brussels Express, and in the morning her joy had been childish, at having a little tray with bad coffee on it thrust in by a busy attendant, who slammed it down on the table and hurried out without so much as glancing at her. How delicious that was! The Princess laughed with delight and drank the coffee, grits and all. "'Oh, the blessed freedom of being insignificant! "'It was as good, she thought, as getting rid of your body altogether, "'and going about an invisible spirit.' "'She sat on the deck of the apparently motionless turbine, "'and thought gleefully of past journeys, now for ever done with, "'of the grand ducal train, of herself drooping inside it "'as wearily as the inevitable bouquets drooping on the tables, "'of the crowds of starers on every platform.' of the bowing officials wherever your eye chanced to turn. The Countess Distal, of course, had been always at her elbow, and when she had to go to the window and do the gracious, her anxiety lest she should bestow one smile too few had only been surpassed by the Countess's anxiety lest she should bestow one smile too many. Well, that was done with now, as much done with as a nightmare, grisly staleness, is done with when you wake to a fair spring morning in the smell of dew and she had no fears. She was sure, knowing him as she did, that when the Grand Duke found out she had run away he would make no attempt to fetch her back, but would simply draw a line through his remembrance of her, rub her out of his mind, his heart she knew would need no rubbing because she had never been in it, and after the first fury was over, fury solely on account of the scandal, he would be as he had been before, while she, oh wonderful new life, she would be born again to all the charities now how can i weak vessel whose only ballast is a cargo of interrogations past which life swirls with a thunder of derisively contradictory replies pretend to say whether priscilla ought to have had conscience qualms or not am i not deafened by the roar of answers all seemingly so right yet all so different that the simplest question brings and would not the answering roar to anything so complicated as a question about conscience-qualms deafen me for ever? I shall leave the princess, then, to run away from her home and her parent if she chooses, and make no effort to whitewash any part of her conduct that may seem black. I shall chronicle and not comment. I shall try to, that is, for comments are very dear to me, indeed i see i cannot move on even now until i have pointed out that though priscilla was getting as far as she could from the grand duke she was also getting as near as she could to the possession of her soul and there are many persons who believe this to be a thing so precious that it is absolutely the one thing worth living for the crossing to dover then was accomplished quite peacefully by priscilla not so however by fritzing He, tormented man, chief target for the goddess's darts, spent his time holding on to the rail along the turbine's side in order to steady himself. And as there was a dead calm that day, the reader will at once perceive that the tempest must have been inside Fritzing himself. It was, and it had been raised to hurricane pitch by some snatches of the talk of two Englishmen he had heard as they paced up and down past where he was standing. The first time they passed, one was saying to the other, I NEVER HEARD OF ANYTHING SO INFAMOUS. THIS OUGHT NOT TO HAVE MADE FRITZING A PERSON OF STAINLESS LIFE AND NOBLE principles, START, BUT IT DID. HE STARTED, AND HE LISTENED ANXIOUSLY FOR MORE. YES, SAID THE OTHER, WHO HAD A NEWSPAPER UNDER HIS ARM, THEY DESERVE ABOUT AS BAD AS THEY'LL— HE WAS OUT OF EARSHOT, BUT FRITZING MECHANICALLY FINISHED THE SENTENCE HIMSELF. WHO HAD BEEN INFAMOUS, AND WHAT WERE THEY GOING TO GET? It was at this point that he laid hold of the handrail to steady himself until the two men should pass again. You can tell, of course, what steps our government will take, was the next snatch. I shall be curious to see the attitude of the foreign papers, was the next. Anything more wanton I never heard of, was the next. Of all the harmless, innocent creatures, was the next. And the last snatch of all-for though they went on walking, Fritzing heard no more after it-was the brief and singular expression, Devils! Devils? What were they talking about? Devils? Was that then how the public stigmatized blameless persons in search of peace? Devils? What, he himself and-no, never Priscilla. She was clearly the harmless innocent creature, and he must be the other thing. But why plural? He could only suppose that he and Annalisa together formed a sulphurous plural. He clung very hard to the rail. Who could have dreamed it would get so quickly into the papers? Who could have dreamed the news of it would call forth such blazing words? They would be confronted at Dover by horrified authorities. His princess was going to be put in a most impossible position. What had he done? Heavens and earth, what had he done?' He clung to the rail, staring miserably over the side into the oily water. Some of the passengers lingered to watch him, at first because they thought he was going to be seasick with so little provocation that it amounted to genius, and afterwards because they were sure he must want to commit suicide. When they found that time passed, and he did neither, he became unpopular, and they went away and left him altogether and contemptuously alone. Fritzi, are you worried about anything?' asked Priscilla, coming to where he still stood staring, although they had got to Dover. "'Worried, when all Europe was going to be about their ears, when he was in the eyes of the world a criminal, an aider, a better, lure away of youth and impulsiveness. "'He loved the princess so much that he cared nothing for his own risks, but what about hers?' in an agony of haste he rushed to his ideals and principles for justification and comfort tumbling them over searching feverishly among them they had forsaken him They were so much lifeless rubbish nowhere in his mind could he find a rag of either comfort or justification with which to stop up his ears against the words of the two englishmen and his eyes against the dreadful sight he felt sure awaited them on the quay at dover the sight of incensed authorities ready to pounce on him and drag him away for ever from his princess. Priscilla gazed at him in astonishment. He was taking no notice of her, and was looking fearfully up and down the row of faces that were watching the turbine's arrival. "'Fritzy, if you're worried, it must be because you've not slept,' said Priscilla, laying her hand with a stroking little movement on his sleeve. For what but overwrought nerves could make him look so odd? It was, after all, Fritzing who had behaved with the braveness of a lion the night before in that matter of the policeman, and it was he who had asked in stern tones of rebuke, when her courage seemed to flicker whether she repented. "'You do not repent?' she asked, imitating that sternness. "'Ma'am,' he began in a low and dreadful voice, his eyes ceaselessly ranging up and down the figures on the quay. Shh, "'Shh, niece!' interrupted Priscilla, smiling. He turned and looked at her, as a man may look for the last time, on the thing in life that has been most dear to him, and said nothing. End of chapter 3